We turn to the gospel as recorded in Luke chapter 22. A record of the first celebration of what is to be known as the Lord's Supper as Christ himself institutes it. Luke 22, now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people, that is, they wanted to do it in secret, of course. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. He went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them, and they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. The best laid plans of evil men go off astray. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? He said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in, and ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. When the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Interesting. Apostles here, not disciples, because, of course, when it's written, they were apostles. But this is also, of course, what's going to happen next is to instruct them as to the heart of the gospel they're going to be preaching as apostles. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I should not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And now these two verses before we conclude. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should be that should do this thing, and there was also strife among them which of them should be counted the greatest. We'll stop there. Isn't that a striking thing? He has just instituted the Lord's Supper, and after trying to assure Christ, it's not I, it's not I, they begin to argue who was going to be chief amongst them. In congregational prayer, I, and we mentioned the gentleness and patience of God. 
These are those whom he's going to die to save. We talk about a mercy and a long-suffering Lord Jesus. Well, he is to be found in this passage. Before we read the Lord's Day that's going to be considered, I want to have an introduction because we're dealing with a Lord's Day, which is the first of three that deals with what is known as the Lord's Supper, and that's the proper designation. Sometimes it's called the Last Supper, but that's not really reference to the Lord's Supper. That's reference to the Passover itself. That's the last Passover. And it's not even the last time that Jesus eats with them, if you recall. After his resurrection, he will appear on the seashore of Galilee, and they will fry some fish, and he will eat a meal with them. This is the first instance of the Lord's Supper, and certainly it's not to be called the Mass, which is of Latin derivation, has to do with another sacrifice, as though another sacrifice, many other sacrifices are needed to add to this one death and sacrifice. Sometimes called communion, holy communion, and there's some correctness to that because through the Lord's Supper, Christ communicates himself to us. There's a communication between Christ and his people via the word that just been preached and then by the signs of the sacrament also, and there is a communion, there is a fellowship of us together as believers, but also with Christ Jesus through that holy communion. Nonetheless, the most correct designation is the Lord's Supper, as the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, stated as they were abusing that supper, if you recall, turning it into a banquet with too much food and too much wine. And he said, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. You are corrupting the Lord's Supper. Why is it called the Lord's Supper? Well, you may say because it's the Lord who instituted it. He's the one who determines the elements, and he's the one who distributed it from the beginning. But it's also to be called the Lord's Supper, beloved, because it is to be distinguished from every other supper. When you consider it from a certain point of view, it's a very strange supper. Just a little bit of bread and just a thimble of wine. Imagine someone after church invites you for supper. And after you've talked a while, they give you just a little piece of bread and just a thimble of wine. And you say, and this is generosity? Talk about frugalness. This takes frugalness to a whole new height. This isn't going to satisfy any appetite. We're going to have to go home and eat again. There is 
in the Lord's Supper a sparse ration, beloved, a very sparse ration. Why? Because the intent of the Lord's Supper is not to feed our bellies. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were coming together and having a rather feast and and eating and eating and drinking too much as though they were going to fill their bellies. And Paul is saying in Corinthians, if you want to fill your bellies, stay home. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about, to fill a man's belly. The Lord's Supper is to minister to and fill a man's soul to feed one spiritually. Because when the Lord's Supper is served, there's a very real sense in which the Lord himself serves it, as we will see. And then he serves what? Maybe I should say he serves whom? His crucified body and his shed blood, according to question 76, in some sense. And beloved, when Christ serves himself, that is what he himself has accomplished and provided for us, then beloved, you have a fully laden table and he gives an abundance of good things. What could satisfy one soul more than Christ Jesus himself and his life? The question being, do we have an appetite for him? Let's pray, beloved. We have great appetite for him. And it's satisfied in the end when it's administered by the word and by the sacrament. Now, with that in mind, Lord's Day 28. How art thou admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper that thou art a partaker of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross and of all his benefits All his benefits. That's quite a full table, you know. That's an abundance of things. Thus, that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him, adding these promises. First, that his body was offered and broken on the cross for me and his blood shed for me as certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me, and further, that he feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. Notice there's that phrase again. Feeds and nourishes our souls with his crucified body and shed blood. Not just bread and wine. His crucified body and shed blood. As assuredly, as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. What is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? It is 
two things. Not only to embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings and death of Christ and thereby to obtain the pardon of sin and life eternal, but also beside that to become more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Ghost who dwells both in Christ and in us so that we, though Christ is in heaven and we on earth are notwithstanding flesh, <coughs> flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone <coughs> and that we live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are by one soul. And where has Christ promised that he will as certainly feed and nourish believers with his body and blood as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup? In the institution of the supper, which is thus expressed, that Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, quoting, of course, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. This promise is repeated by the Holy Apostle where he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, that is, the communication of the blood of Christ with its benefits? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ, communicating the benefits of the body of Christ and the life of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, because we are all partakers of that one bread. Going to consider this Lord's Day under the theme, the Lord's Supper, making a significant testimony in light of its singular focus, in light of who ordained it, and in light of who feeds our soul. significant testimony, and I suppose the full theme would be making a significant testimony and therefore not to be neglected, but rather why we as members are to partake. And then light of who ordained it, or if you will, instituted it, in the interest of remembrance of him, but also so that we might partake of him. That's in the supper as well, as we've already suggested by reference to his body and his, his blood. Whenever we are confronted again by the catechism's treatment of the Lord's Supper, one can't help but notice the lengthy treatment that's given to the sacrament. Not one Lord's Day, not two Lord's Days, three Lord's Days, and the 
answers to the question aren't short either. It's a very thorough treatment. Many today who once used the catechism say, far too lengthy and really unnecessary and showing once again how the catechism is out of step with the times. It's so doctrinal and who needs all those doctrines and it's always dealing with sin and the greatness of sin and bringing home guilt and who needs more burdens of guilt these days. And then you have two-fifths of it dealing with the law and then a rather detailed explanation of what's forbidden and what's required. Can't we just say, love, let's love one another and let it go at that? Well, here's another instance why the catechism has outlived its usefulness. The reason, of course, for the lengthy treatment has historical reasons. It goes back to the days of the Reformation and the controversy with Rome and Rome's emphasis upon the Lord's Supper, which they called the Mass, but upon the Lord's Supper, emphasizing it to this degree that a person's salvation in the end depended upon one's partaking of their sacrament at a very regular basis because you could be saved and baptism would have given you spiritual life, but if you didn't continue to partake of the mass in the end from the hands of her priests and the sacrifice on her altar, you would perish for all of that. This overemphasis of the sacrament as making a person's very salvation depend on your partaking of their sacrament. And the members of the Re Reformation Church, of course, had just come out of that and they had to be shaken loose from their superstition, the hold that that sacrament had on them left. They overemphasized it as well, which is not unknown, as we will point out a little later. But also, the instruction is to make plain that not only are the Reformed dismissing Rome's overemphasis of the sacrament and its abuse and mistaken views of the sacrament, but also to make plain at the same time we as Reformed do not minimize the sacrament as though it has no value. Of course it has value. We will get to and just a little bit further from the point of view who instituted it and what did he say when he instituted it? We read that, didn't we? You shall do this in remembrance of me and continue to do this until I am pleased to return again. But that was Rome idolizing the sacrament. And, of course, in the idolizing of the sacrament, mutilating the gospel of 
Christ Jesus himself, so you have this lengthy treatment as the reformers sought to wean their members from the superstition that was affiliated with it and then to teach them what it actually did teach and what it did convey. Because at the end, it's not simply a matter of the sacrament. One's view of the sacrament has everything to do with what your gospel is, whether it's the apostolic gospel or it's the mutilation of the apostolic gospel. It's striking, you know, that the sacramental controversy of the Reformation was not the first sacramental controversy the church had to deal with, or if you will, signs and seals of God's covenant. The New Testament church had to deal with that right out of the gate, if you will. The apostles had to deal with a, we can call it sacramental, the signs and seals of the covenant, circumcision, and the importance of circumcision, and whether a man yet had to be circumcised if he was going to partake of the Lord's Supper, baptized or not, because according to these Christians of a Jewish extraction who couldn't get rid of the old sign circumcision, as far as they were concerned, if you came into the assembly, a Gentile who had been baptized but uncircumcised, you better not sit with us. You're defiled yet. You may have a cleansing, but you're not holy. Cleanse not until the circumcision. You are defiled and unclean. We can't eat with you, not in our homes and certainly not at the table. Baptism and Christ's death necessary, basic, but it's not enough. More must be added to Christ's one sacrifice. The, the, the suppers of Rome, the masses of Rome, what we call these things that are put on the table and become the body and the blood of Christ. You must partake of those too, you see. It's interesting how Paul, the apostle, dealt with that early sacramental controversy, if you will, the signs and the seal of the covenant and that baptism has replaced circumcision and that one needs not be circumcised to go to the Lord's Supper. He dealt with it, of course, from two points of view, from a historical point of view and what we call a doctrinal point of view. So one, if he's not circumcised, is yet unclean and defiled, though he is a believer and has been baptized not only by the sign, but in reality washed by the blood and spirit of Christ. You read Romans and you read the book of Galatians, which are rather lengthy treatments, you know, of this controversy. And I'm going to restate Paul in a way. Historically, he confronts them. Have you ever heard of a certain man called Abraham, by the way? Father Abraham? You're quite familiar with Father Abraham, are you not? You know when he was circumcised? when he was 99 years old. In other words, for over half his life, he was uncircumcised, though he was a believer. Now, my fellow Jewish Christians, if Father Abraham were to appear and the sacrament were being 
administered, and he was 75 years old. Would you receive him? Would you eat and drink with Father Abraham? Uncircumcised at the age of 75? Or wouldn't even Abraham be considered good enough for you at this point? But even more to the point, he reminds them of Genesis 15, 6, when at 75, God has made a promise to Abraham concerning, I will give you seed to inherit the promised land. If you recall, what do we read in Genesis 15, 6? And Abraham believed, and it was counted to him for righteousness. 25 years before, he was circumcised. Remember that, my Jewish brethren? Faith counted righteousness, uncircumcised. And you're saying the righteousness that God imputed to him was not enough? to have him considered washed and cleansed and righteous enough to partake? It's almost rhetorical. It's so obvious. So first from a historical point of view, even that Father Abraham, of whose lineage you are so proud, uncircumcised, a believer, counted as righteous, and having the right, certainly, to fellowship and communion with the Lord God. And I would think with the two, though you yourself may now be circumcised. That's a historical argument. But if you go to Paul, there is also, of course, what we call the doctrinal argument, a reminder of the cross of Christ and the one sacrifice of Christ and reminding them if a man has to be circumcised to partake of the supper, to be counted undefiled and clean, then you are saying that the cross of Christ was not enough to wash and to cleanse. You have just made an assault upon the death of the Son of God and the power and the value of the shedding of the blood of the Son of God, that the blood of the eternal Son of God was not itself enough to make the full payment for sin, to make one worthy of salvation, and to give one the right to salvation and fellowship to God. You have just insulted Christ Jesus himself and God's work on the cross and mutilated the gospel, the doctrinal, the doctrinal argument is the cross of Christ and the death of Christ Jesus sufficient for the payment of all of our sins and to make us worthy in and of itself for our salvation and the right to fellowship with God, or is it not the Judaizing Christians were saying no. And that, of course, puts a challenge to their so-called confession and their faith. But that's also the catechism's argument, first of all, and over against Rome. It's striking, you know, 
how often that phrase, the one sacrifice of Christ, appears not only in our Lord's days, but some Lord's days you have already just considered. Notice how Lord's Day 28 opens with this question. How art thou admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper that thou art a partaker of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross? That one sacrifice. Meaning, of course, as the only sacrifice, partaker of that one only sacrifice of Christ, and not a sacrifice to be repeated over and over again on some denomination's altar by its priests. The one sacrifice of Christ. That's not the first time the catechism has used that phrase. As you might well be aware, if you consider the sermons on some previous Lord's Day, beginning in Lord's Day 25, what are the sacraments? 66, and then it says, namely, that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. One sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. That's the emphasis, you see. And then the word in sacraments, 67, direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation, only, one only. Answer depends upon that one sacrifice of Christ which he offered for us on the cross. And then 69, how art thou admonished? And assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to thee. There's the singular focus, beloved, on the sacrifice, the death of Christ and the full sufficiency of that sacrifice. In other words, beloved, in the end, the catechism takes the same approach as the Apostle Paul. And it's the same weaknesses in the end that troubled the church in the new, early New Testament that troubles the church in the days of the Reformation as well. For, the, for our salvation, is Christ's sacrifice enough? Or in addition to Christ's sacrifice, must there be something added, either by the Lord's Supper or by deeds and works and what have you? And the answer, of course, is no, nothing. Nothing may be, and the end, nothing can be, because nothing possibly can have the value of the blood of the eternal Son of God. What can begin to compare? Anything else will always have taints and mutilations and corruptions and defilements. So I have here the catechism to deal with what Rome did in the overemphasis of the sacrament and in overemphasizing the sacrament so that your salvation depended on it in some way is to minimize the cross, just as the Jews overemphasize circumcision and minimize what Christ accomplished by his death, by the shedding of his blood. Now, that's the catechism as it directs us towards this Lord's Supper. But you understand, as it dismisses 
Rome's abuse of the overemphasis and a lengthy treatment, let's not think then that it is irrelevant. Not only irrelevant in its own day, but beloved, it's still relevant today in its standing against Rome because it's a striking thing that as the church apostatizes, the direction is always in what we can call the Romish direction. That is what the apostate Romish church as the once the true church turned into. Always that kind of a corruption of the Christian religion ends up Romish in the end with a certain idolatry and all, all the rest. You know, they are talking today of evangelicals and Christians together. The road leads back to Rome. After all, we are all brother from a certain point of view. They confess doctrine in a certain point of view, and we confess doctrine in a certain point of view. We all talk about Christ Jesus and the, and the cross. Can't we just learn to get along together and look at the world, how large it is, and Rome has how many members, and certainly we can help each other if we just band together with, with Rome. After all, doctrine doesn't make that much difference when all is said and done, does it? We can be useful to each other. And if we are going to condemn Rome and speak so critically, how can that be Christian? How can that be love? Well, beloved, I'll tell you this. If opposing the doctrine of Rome and her mutilation of the gospel via her sacrament is not Christian, then neither was the Apostle Paul Christian. Because the Apostle Paul brooked no opposition to the gospel of Christ, and when it came to the gospel of Christ, was fiercely uh, defending it. As we read in Galatians, he speaks in the very beginning of the grace of Christ, and then he speaks of him who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. But the one sacrifice of Christ, he says in Galatians, basically, who gave himself that he, not he and others might deliver, he by his death might deliver us. I said it before, I'll say it again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be anathema, accursed. He brooked no opposition to the gospel. And when it came to defending that gospel, all of grace, as it magnifies the one only sacrifice of Christ as being sufficient, he was a vigorous defender in the interest, beloved, of the gospel and the glory of Christ and the glory of the cross itself and its one only saving value and power. And as I said, these Lord's Days remind us of the error of Rome and the drift is today towards Rome, and you have this ecumenical spirit all in the name of love, but it's a love that has to do simply with numbers, and it's a love that has to do with simply approving someone no matter what they teach, but it's not a love of the truth and for the truth of the gospel. I want to remind you as well that the drift can be seen in Protestant churches as the apostasy 
has set in so that you have a day and age in which church after church has begun to minimize the preaching, the word of the gospel. And the byword is, you may say something, Domini, but keep it short and sweet. And the shorter it is, the sweeter it is to us. But here we are, and why are we here if you don't want to hear the gospel preached? We need the sacrament. We are church members because we need to have the sacrament on a regular basis. And the confidence in the end becomes in that have partaken of the sacrament on a regular basis. And that proves that I'm a Christian. I'm baptized, I partook of the Lord's Supper, and therefore I am certainly going to be saved. And when I die, a clergyman will say good words over my casket because I partook of the sacrament. While they neglected worship again and again and despised, really, the word of Christ himself in the gospel. That's the drift. That's the direction they have gone, and it's part of the reason why they set the catechism, Reformed churches set the catechism aside as well. These are words in season to love, these Lord's Day. So the instruction of the Lord's Day, on the one hand, to make sure that the sacrament is not overemphasized and it is not magnified out of all due process and all due form so that it swallows up the preaching of the gospel and all I need is the sacrament and then I can have some assurance that I'm saved because I partook of the sacrament on a regular basis. But also to make plain that though salvation does not depend on the taking of the sacrament, that's not to minimize the importance of the sacrament and the benefit of partaking of the sacrament on a regular basis as it is administered. And the catechism gets that across, the importance of the, catech uh, of the sacrament and of our availing ourselves to the sacrament by this Lord's Day that has to do with the rich instruction significance of the sacrament. That rich instruction of the sacrament and then our calling to partake of it, of course, is underscored by the fact that it was instituted by Christ himself. This is not simply something that the apostles, after the Lord had died, risen, and departed, they decide, let's make a memorial feast to, to what he did and do this and this. this. This was given to the church by the Lord of the church himself. And the Lord of the church, as he gave that, said, and do this in remembrance of me. In other words, do it again and again and again. I'm not just doing this, this one night to give you something to remember me by. But when I'm gone... They didn't understand at the point that he was going to be gone, but when he ascended, they remembered his, his words. Do this in remembrance of me when you come together to worship. In remembrance of me. To remember what? In the first place, beloved, to remember his sacrifice, his death the bread and the cup designated by Christ himself, that piece of bread and that little 
cup of wine as the proper remembrance of his great sacrifice. Bread, broken. We think basically of the brokenness of the bread, I suppose, because it represents the suffering. In a graphic way, Christ is going to remind them and us of his suffering, what he endured for our sake. Broken bread, as his body was broken and suffered. And the wine is poured out as he shed his blood and his suffering and gave his life. That's true. It has to do with his suffering and with his sacrifice. But it's bread and wine. And bread has to do with eating it. And it has to do with sustaining life and feeding life. And wine, too, as a, as a liquid. To answer to a thirst. To satisfy a thirst and even to have something to do with a joy. It's red because it has to do with his blood, not white wine. It's red wine. Always, always must be red wine to symbolize that it's the blood. But it's the feeding as well as the sacrifice, his suffering. In other words, still today, remember, I am ministering to you. Not just 2,000 years ago did Christ minister to his church, but to his apostles, when I'm gone and you partake of the sacrament and you administer it, remember I am still ministering to you. I'm still caring for you. I'm still giving you what you have need of from a spiritual point of view in this life. Do this in remembrance of me, what I sacrificed for you, but that I'm still ministering to you as well. But as well, what he ministers to us. And this is where the catechism is rather striking from a certain point of view. Will you read in the 75, first of all, that he feeds and nourishes my soul with his crucified body and shed blood, which gives us pause. I thought we didn't eat his flesh. I thought we didn't drink his blood. I thought that was Romish. It says here, he feeds and nourishes my soul with his crucified body and shed blood. And then you go to 76. What has been to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood? One might think it should read, what is it then to eat the broken bread and drink the poured out wine? What does that symbolize? But that's not how the catechism puts it. It says, what is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood? Are we Romish? Well, of course we're not Romish. But why does it phrase it that way? It phrases it that way on the basis of Scripture itself. And what the catechism has in mind here is not, first of all, that Christ says, this is my body, broken for you, and this is, this is the cup of, of, of my blood shed for you, which he did at the Lord's Supper, that, maybe that too. But if you read the catechism, you will notice that along the, the side of it, there's reference to passages of Scripture, or maybe it's under it in your version, and that it attaches to question and answer 76, John 6. John 6, 
and then what you find scattered throughout that chapter in John 6. And this is what you read in John chapter 6. He says in 35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth in me shall never thirst. And then he goes on to say in verse 53, Verily I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Who eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You must eat my flesh, and you must drink my blood, or you'll have no life in you. He says this, if you recall your Bible history, the day after he fed the 5,000 and broke bread and fed their bellies, and it became instantly popular, this is the king we need. He is the bread king. We can be forever on government subsidy without ever doing one more labor, and he can provide everything we need for our belly, and he can heal us as well. Let's have him as our earthly king to minister to our physical needs. And he refused, of course, their nomination, and he dispersed his disciples across the water who were the instigators of this. They wanted his popularity, and they wanted him now at the, at the high tide of his popularity to accept the nomination for kingship. And he put them out on that sea, if you re recall, where a storm came up, and they thought they were going to die. And they were terrified. And they had bellies full of bread. They had been well fed. Belly full of bread. And they were afraid of dying. Why? Because to face death, beloved, you need more than a belly full of bread. You need a savior of your soul. You need a life that physical death can't touch. And to have that life, you must have Christ Jesus more than one who has given you earthly bread from his fingers. You must have him and his life in you. And he taught them and brought that home. And they learned that because they would preach this later, of course, as is recorded in the gospel, when they went and brought the gospel. And then they still followed him, and they still want him to be king, and he refuses. And then he says, I am the bread of life. I'm not here simply to give you earthly bread to keep your physical life alive. I am here to feed a man's soul, and you must feed on me, my flesh and my blood. And many are offended by this and followed him no more. In fact, when he stated these things, even his disciples, we read, were confused and absolutely perplexed. So that it concludes with these words. Many, therefore, of his disciples would follow him when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, a difficult saying. Who can hear it? And then he followed him no more. When Jesus knew in himself that his own disciples murmured, he said to them, doth this offend you? Are you offended too? Will you leave me? What if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend? And now these words, these are the explanations. It is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh, profiteth nothing. Chewing on my flesh will profit you nothing. That's not what's going to work salvation, chewing on my flesh. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They are 
life. In other words, Christ is saying here that for a man to live and to continue in life, he must feed on Christ and listen to my words by faith. And he who listens to my words by faith feeds on me as really as if you were to be eating my flesh and drinking my blood. In other words, my life is in you, don't you? We'll see. What is it? The Catechism says this is what it means not only to embrace, really what the Catechism says, there's two things. It means that when one with a believing heart embraces the sufferings and death of Christ, he obtains the pardon of sin and life eternal. The one who believes on Christ, what he has accomplished, puts the whole of his faith in Christ, what he accomplishes, obtains the pardon of sin and life eternal. But even more than that, when one has this faith and puts all of his confidence in that one cross of Christ and what he has done becomes more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Ghost who dwells both in Christ and in us. What the Catechism is saying here is that when the supper is served, there is what we call a real presence of Christ, not a physical presence, a bodily presence, but nonetheless a real presence. The Spirit, beloved, is the Spirit of Christ. He's here. He's a person, you know. We can't see him anymore than we see the air. You think the Holy Spirit doesn't see us right now? We're in the presence of God, you know. And the Spirit comes to us by the word to communicate who to us. We breathe, breathe in to minister to our lungs and our physical life, but we need more than breath for our lungs to minister to our physical life. The Holy Spirit comes to us to administer to our spiritual life, to feed that spiritual life, to feed the souls. He does that by his word, but the catechism is Input. He enriches that word with his sacrament. And he communicates Christ to us. He conveys the life of Christ, what Christ obtained by the shedding of his blood and the suffering of his body. Conveys Christ himself to us as the living Christ, what we call the spirit of Christ and the mind of Christ and the benefits of Christ. And so from a certain point of view, we are eating his crucified body. The benefits of that body and drinking the shed blood, the benefits of that shed blood and the life of Christ himself. So, beloved, this is in the end does not in any way minimize the importance of the sacrament, but it magnifies the importance of the sacrament as it serves, in the end, as it serves our faith. In the end, it's not the sacrament that saves us. It's the Christ of whom the sacrament speaks who saves us. And he works that salvation in connection with his word as he speaks concerning himself and then confirms it by what we see and by what we taste, that God is good. And then finally, beloved, this word. In conclusion, that when the Lord's Supper is distributed, 
there is a very real sense in which the Lord himself gives it to us. The Catechism points that out when it says that he, and further, his, he to nourish my, uh, uh, my, my with, sanct- with, with eternal life. That he, 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 he sacrificed, I'm sorry, further, that we, that he nourishes our, uh, our, unto, un, unto, etern- uh, unto everlasting life. He does that. It's from the hands of a minister. It's from an elder. But in the end, beloved, though they may be the ones who are giving it, Christ is there. There's a reason why it was distributed on the first day of the week, not on Friday, the day when he was crucified, but on the first day of the week. You read of that in Acts, that they came together on the first day of the week and they broke bread, not just had a supper, a banquet, they had the Lord's Supper on the first, why the first day of the week? Because they were reminding themselves that they were serving a living Savior and that the living Savior was ministering to them. They weren't simply part, they weren't simply breaking the bread as a memorial service that he had died for them and let's keep his memory alive. He's a wonderful Savior, you know. They're saying he still lives. He is the one who is still ministering to us, and we are partaking of him as he ministers to us. And when the supper is served, beloved, remember that. There's a certain sense, you know, in which when the supper is served, you stand in the presence of Christ himself, and he is giving it to you. What a wonderful thought when you think about it that Christ himself says, this is for you. Eat and drink. I gave myself with you in mind to pay for your sins and now to feed your souls. And if it's Christ himself who is giving it to you by his spirit, what must be true by implication? You take and eat. And if there is a hindrance, Christ says, what is hindering you from partaking? You better deal with it. You better deal with it that you may partake of me. Don't put it off. Repent of this sin. Remove this sin by my blood, by faith in my name, by confession, that you may be fed by me. He knows our needs, beloved. And he's left the supper behind to assure us that I still minister to you. That's gospel. It's good news. And I do that not on the basis of your worth or your worthiness. I do this on the basis of my love and my sacrifice. Take courage. Confess your sin. Cast yourself upon my mercy. And taste and see that I am good. And I will give you a bounty for your souls. Amen.
for thy word we give thee thanks, and for the sacrament we thank thee, Father, that thou dost still testify to us in this late date of the sacrifice of our Christ and his remembrance of us. And through him we pray thou wilt continue to minister to us and provide our every need, especially our spiritual. In Jesus' name, 